I'm a misanthrope, yet I am utterly benevolent. I have more than one screw loose, yet I am super idealist, who digests philosophy more efficiently than food. Who said these words? Well, it was none other than Alfred Nobel, the subject of this wonderful new book by my friend Uni Turatini called Betraying the Nobel. And in this episode, you're going to hear about all sorts of amazing tidbits that you never knew about the Nobel Prize, the prize, as it was known, the Nobel Peace Prize, including why Donald Trump was a good selection, according to Uni, perhaps, and that one that Alfred himself may have condoned, if you will, if you can believe it. Uh, you'll also hear about why is the Nobel Peace Prize, which is a Swedish organization, Alfred Nobel was Swedish. Why is it given out in Norway? That's kind of weird. I always perplex me. And you'll also hear about what can be done to restore the Nobel Peace Prize to their former statue, uh, stature of glory, prestige, etc. that they had for many, many years. And some say the gold of the Nobel Peace Prize has become tarnished thanks to being awarded to uh, individuals that we discuss in this episode. So for now, everything you've ever wanted to know about the Nobel Peace Prize, coming up in Betraying the Nobel with none other than Uni Turatini. Enjoy the episode. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. All the way from, are you in Oslo right now, Uni? I'm in Oslo, Norway, absolutely. Yeah, the home of the Nobel Peace Prize. And she has written a phenomenal new book, a, uh, a book that was a cri de coeur, a cry from the heart, as they say, that really uh, just, just struck me so deeply and touched uh, many nerves and in a good way. Uh, and I couldn't be more proud to become friendly with Uni as she's come uh, to bring this book to the world that so desperately needs it. And the book is, of course, I'm, I'm only holding up my early version of it, but it's called Betraying the Nobel. And uh, I want to welcome you, Uni, all the way from Norway. Thank you so much for joining us on the Into the Impossible podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's an honor. And it's funny, you're, you're, you're holding up the, the, the previous cup. I don't even have that one yet. Like, oh, I you don't? don't? Have, like, yeah. <laughs> So I have not actually not seen or held my book in my Wow. Yeah. I, get, I get mine uh, tonight uh, from Amazon. I'll get it in uh, Kindle form first, and then I'll get it in physical copy. They assure me tomorrow, which is publication oh. day, and it's published by Pegasus, and it's a beautifully, uh, it's a beautifully written book. It's a, very, uh, it's a very, very quick read. I read it literally in under two or three hours nonstop. Uh, which is saying a lot for the pandemic podcasting that I'm doing. I'm reading, trying to read uh, a book every week or two weeks, and this one just kept me up. I couldn't stop reading it. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so wonderful. So I want to talk to you uh, first and foremost about uh, about what it's like to write a book like this and why you were inspired to do this. You, you are aware of my book, Losing the Nobel Prize, which is about science and kind of my personal experiences with the Nobel Prize and, and some of its shortcomings that myself and other members of the scientific community have highlighted uh, to some avail, not necessarily no avail. But why did you, a, an author who had previously written about the lone wolf killer uh, and, and has done so much in so many other fields, why did you write a book about the Nobel Prizes? Yeah, you know, that's, it's, it's a great question. Um, I have, all, as a Norwegian myself, I've always been very proud and honored that my home country of Norway gives out the Nobel Peace Prize. 
And um, I thought, you know, we were doing such a great job. And then in 2009, when they awarded Barack Obama, and before he had, I mean, he had, when he was nominated, he had been less than two weeks in office. And he had, you know, given a lot of great speeches, but he hadn't really started doing any of the things that, that he said he would do. So obviously that prize was given for his potential as a leader and what he would do than for what he actually had done. And I thought I was curious. So that actually sparked an interest to dig deeper. And, you know, you're asking you know, like my, what my reason, I, I love research. So I, I'm, I'm curious as, you know, in, in general about a lot of things. And my first book on the, on the lone wolf killers is really about how our culture, how, how our communities contribute to someone's evolution into becoming a mass killer. And so I discovered that the Nobel Peace Prize is also a lot about culture and who wins is a lot about the Norwegian culture and uh, Norwegian politics. And, you know, what I found was, you know, that the committee, there's a committee of five people and they are all politicians. Either, you know, now they're all former politicians. Uh, they're not active any longer, but they have given the honor to, to sit on the Nobel Peace Prize committee as a thank you for a long and loyal service to the main, you know, the two main political parties. So obviously then the decisions that they make, the selections that they make are political. And that's what I found. And that, you know, really shocked me. And when uh, you approach a book like this, your previous book, you have, uh, you, you're not trained as a journalist. You were trained as a, as a lawyer or to study law. Can you talk a little bit about your background and what makes you such a good storyteller? Um, well, I'm not sure that I'm a good storyteller, but <laughs> I, yeah, I studied law in three countries. Uh, I'm a lawyer in Norway. And then I also, at the same time as I was finishing up my, my studies in Norway, I studied law in Paris. And so I have a law degree uh, from, from France as well. And then I did a master's uh, in law in Boston in the United States and um, took the New York bar exam. So um, I practiced as an attorney of law in a, in a, in a US law firm in Paris back then. And I, and I worked from some, for some companies as an in-house lawyer as well um, and in the finance industry. So I come from a very sort of legal um, corporate world and, um, and that was never really a passion. I mean, I did it as I thought that was, you know, something that I was supposed to do. I mean, I, and I, what I did, what I loved about my law studies though, that was, you know, I got to do a lot of research. So I got to sort of explore my curiosity, why things work the way they do in society and, you know, all these things. Um, but practicing corporate law was not really uh, my passion. So, um, but I've always been a ferocious reader. I mean, like yourself, so I've always been very curious. So, um, so you know, this it, from but but from doing research and finding out, you know, finding information, and then to writing this book. I mean, that was a that was a longer process, you know. So that took me some. That was a learning curve for sure, and still is, you know. So. 
Well, you're definitely meticulous in your research. And when we chat more in the future, I'll ask you about that process as coming from a, a lawyer's perspective, because I think you bring some of that kind of cross-examination, that rigor, that mental, rational way of thinking that's really scientific uh, about a a peace prize, which is uh, which is just uh, phenomenal. I want to get controversial uh, for a second. I, I read a quote from you in a uh, in an August newspaper. Actually, I've just found out that it has the highest set fourth highest circulation uh, newspaper in the United States, and that's called the New York Post from my hometown, New York. Uh, mm-hmm. And the following quote comes from author Uri uh, Uni Tiratini, Trump. President Donald Trump is actually exactly what the Alfred Nobel wanted for his peace champions. Can you explain that to me? And uh, was that taken out of context? (laughs) Absolutely. And when I, you know, I last week, just a week ago, I was interviewed by the New York Post. I knew they wanted to do a feature of my book um, coming out and they, because and especially because Trump has been nominated now four or five times for the Peace Prize next year. And he was nominated also in 2018, I believe. Um, and so they wanted to talk about Trump and the Peace Prize and, you know, also, you know, uh, yeah, uh, with the election coming up. Um, and so I did not say at all that I thought he was a worthy peace champion. Um, but he does fulfill, you know, some of the criteria in Alfred Nobel's last will. So he has, you know, uh, in through agreements and economic agreements and also other agreements brought countries closer together. And so he has filled and that he has done in the, in the previous year. So there's a previous year criteria that actually the, the Nobel committee doesn't usually look so much at. So he does, you know, he definitely, um, he fulfills that criteria. He has done some, obviously, I mean, he has done some good things too. So I think it's it's fair to give credit where credit is, is due, right? But um, what I said to the journalist in the New York Post is that I don't believe that Alfred Nobel would have chosen a person like uh, Donald Trump, not because he hasn't done some good things, but because his whole persona and rhetoric is more divisive than it is unifying and i think we see that also like within the united states um you know riots and um and protesting and uh you know things going on there not only due to covid but just in a sort of a general sense of of, of anger and um distrust um and i'm not saying that this is all his fault i think there's it's a it's a long line of things that I think there's a long, uh, an ongoing, why, you know, I think people voted for Trump because of a lot of, because they lack trust in the political elite and in the, in the, in the leaders that we've had previously. So there's something that has to be done there um, so that people, the general population feels that they have uh, have a chance at life, that they actually can get out of poverty, that they are, you know, given just, you know, just um, wages that are, that you can live on, you know? And um, so, so there is, I think there's a lot of discontent underlying all of that, that creates this division as well, and also cre- make people uh, vote for someone like Donald Trump, who has a very, 
splitting and divisive rhetoric. And Donald Trump also has created a lot of, you know, sort of, well, yeah, conflict with, with other countries, you know, with China, with, you know, there's, so, so there are, um, and also, I mean, I don't think there's one European government that is in favor of Donald Trump. They're, they're all, you know, he's a very sort of hated political figure in Europe. Um, so, so I think he doesn't have that sort of unifying, uh, care, you know, manner and way of being as uh, Barack Obama had, you know, so, so, uh, so, but of course you can't give somebody the Nobel Peace Prize just by being a unifying person. You know, you have to actually take some steps and do something too. Right. And you point out in the article, or at least you're quoted in the article as, as speaking in favor of the fact that he did accomplish something that had been impossible for, you know, decades, the Abraham Accords in yeah. the Middle East. Israel features very prominently in the book, which uh, as, a, as a Jew, as someone with attachment to Israel, I found very fascinating. And, uh, and I think you have a tremendous amount of courage to write a book like this. Um, here's what the cover will look like. So you haven't seen it, but uh, I'll show it there. There's Betraying the Nobel. Um, and it has a foreword by Professor Michael Nobel. And we both know there are these rumors that, you know, Alfred Nobel, <clears throat> his wife, uh, was uh, seduced by a mathematician and that's why there's no no Nobel Prize in mathematics. That's, of course, nonsense. He wasn't even married, uh, but he did have brothers, and his brothers had children and grandchildren, um, and they are still possessing the Nobel name. question is, they do not seem to agree, except in the sciences mostly, with the direction that the Nobel Prize committees have taken their namesake prize. In other words, the Nobel Peace Prize in particular and the Nobel Prize in economics, quote unquote, the, Alfred, the Swedish Central Bank Prize in honor of Alfred Nobel, as it's technically known. Uh, yeah. They've been very outspoken about that. His, uh, these would be his great nephews, I suppose. Um, yeah. Talk to us about the foreword written by Professor Michael Nobel in your book. What is his attitude towards what the Nobel Prize has become and how has it strayed from what his great uncle would have wanted? Yeah, that's a, you know, it's, I've had a sort of a long uh, friendship now with uh, Michael Nobel and I'm really honored to, to call him a friend. And he's helped me tremendously with, with my book because when I brought my project to him and my research and I, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't, you know, like I, I wanted to know what he as a member of the Nobel, Nobel family and and also he has been quite outspoken about in particular the Peace Prize and uh, has, has written articles in Norwegian newspapers and and you know he's he's very he, he really cares deeply for the cause of peace and also for the legacy of his um, of his uh, ancestor you know of his you know great great grand uncle or something how do you call it oh, well, you know he, he cared you know he really cares about the legacy legacy and that Alfred Nobel really wanted to create a better world that was his that was his gold goal so he um he wanted to um also all his inventions Alfred Nobel all his inventions were were really for the betterment of the world you know dynamite which was you know is also dangerous and can be used for you know lethal you know means and war but it was really meant to uh for infrastructure to um you know for you know tunnels building railroads and it was so it's you know he's he really wanted to create an, an just a better and easier 
uh, world for people. And so, and everywhere. So he wanted his, in, in, in Michael Nobel's view and what I've, you know, everything that I've read and understood is that all his pieces, all his prices um, in the different, you know, the science prices as well. And we've spoken about this as well, Brian, that, you know, we, we really believe that, that Alfred Nobel wanted to create a better world through all of his, you know, and ultimately a more stable and peaceful world through all of his prices. So, yeah, and that also makes it so um, almost devastating and really sad that um, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee will just, you know, the five people will just sit there and just ignore Alfred Nobel's intentions and also legal document, which states this, right? And they will just ignore it and just give it to the, give it to people and, and, and causes that they deem are, you know, you know, oh, we believe this is a good cause and we'll call it peace this year, you know? Yeah, and, and Michael points out in the forward to your, to your lovely book, he points out, he says, this prize, the peace prize in particular, was called the prize. In fact, sometimes I'll give a talk and the, uh, and the host, you know, of my talk, or perhaps I'll be on radio or something like that, and the host will call it, you know, um, losing the Nobel Peace Prize. In, in other words, it's almost like the Nobel Peace Prize is the prize, as Michael states. Now, you're a lawyer, and I want you to turn your keen legal mind to the question of if Alfred Nobel's ghost came to you and said, Uni, I need you to take a case. Uh, mm -hmm. The Nobel Prize that I endowed to make the world a better place has gone to terrorists, has gone to warmongers, has gone to people that increased the number of standing armies yeah. on planet Earth. What would yeah. you do? Would you take that case, Uni? I would. I definitely would. And because, I mean, he was very clear. I mean, it, it's not a detailed document, his last will, as you know, but there were some criteria there. And, uh, you know, Alfred Nobel, he wanted, um, he wanted uh, his, his, you know, there were really four elements uh, to his last will um, in regards to the peace price. He wanted his, the, the winners to be champions of peace. We wanted them to work for brotherhood between nations, the abolition or reduction of armies, and to hold peace congresses. Peace congresses can be any sort of large, you know, meeting or, you know, getting people, you know, unifying people together. And, you know, and um, so, 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 um, and when, um, so, and that is a legal document. A last, you know, a, a will, last will and testament is, a legal document. So as an attorney, I would say, well, if you have a legal document that tells you that every year you give money to, um, to this cause, let's say to, um, to uh, find a cure for cancer, right? Then you cannot give that, that money to allocate it to uh, to for for COVID, for example, you cannot because it's supposed to go for for cancer research. So unless there is no more cancer in this world, and then you know with the foundation, you can agree on okay, well let's let's decide what we should give the money to then you know next because there's no more cancer. Then you can give it to you know to 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 fight COVID. <laughs> but you know that that is what a legal document is and. 
so there is a responsibility uh, that the Nobel Foundation has in Stockholm. They actually sit with the, the legal responsibility to supervise what the different Nobel committees do with the prize and to, and to sort of agree on it, you know, like at least, you know, at the very least, come up with a set of guidelines, you know, okay, what, you know, what can we include in this prize and what can we not include in this prize? So there's, you know, there's definitely some issues of, is this, is this really legal what they're doing? So you take the case. That sounds good. I would well, definitely take the case. You'd be in very good and competent legal hands with you at the helm. Um, I want to talk now about uh, the issue of nominations. So yeah. I, I, I mentioned this in my book, <clears throat> Losing the Nobel Prize, but only in the context of why the secrecy period is so long uh, mm -hmm. for the physics prizes and the chemistry prizes, et cetera, that my, when I made a nomination in 2016, uh, I was only told a few different things. One was that I couldn't nominate myself. So that, you know, reduced the number of deserving candidates from, you know, a million to 999,999. <laughs> but, uh, but nevertheless, I wasn't really given that much guidance. Uh, in fact, I, when I received the letter inviting me to nominate, it basically said that it could be for something given a discovered or invented decades earlier uh, in contradistinction to what Alfred Nobel's will explicitly says in the previous year. It also said it could be given to multiple people, which he did not uh, uh, explicitly say in his in his last will. And, it, and then it said, for the betterment of mankind, which is the kind of heterodox component of the Nobel Prize in Physics that makes it kind of like the Nobel uh, Pri Peace Prize in that it's yeah. attempting to make the world better. And yeah. in that sense, imitate the Peace Prize. It's clear to me that the Peace Prize was closest to his heart. Now, given that, um, they don't really control, you know, who nominates beyond a certain level. They can send it out to their to their networks and, and try to encourage perhaps specific fields. But the Nobel Peace Prize is open to anybody. Anybody can nominate the winners of the Peace Prize, as I understand it. It can have hundreds or thousands of winners. Uh, you talk in the book about a couple of egregious examples, not only of, of winners of the Nobel Peace Prize, ranging from terrorists like Arafat uh, to, uh, to, to other people, but also nominated, nominated parties like Hitler, Mussolini, yeah. and Stalin. Now, yeah. um, can we really blame the Peace Prize committees themselves for who gets nominated? Again, Trump was nominated. I'm no way comparing him to uh, those horrible individuals. But, but a lot is made of, oh, so-and-so is nominated for the prize in physics. We don't know who's nominated for the prize for 50 years, which is another story. But, yeah. um, but can we blame them for who gets nominated? It's not their fault. No, well, absolutely. That's a great point. We cannot blame uh, the committee for who gets nominated. What I, what I do think would help restore trust in the Nobel, you know, Peace Prize as an as an institution, as a beacon of hope, you know, and inspiration for people, is if they would make the nomination process public. Why why this secrecy? It's not compatible with our world that we have today. Maybe it was a hundred years ago, but not anymore. So why just you know make it make it public and make and also um, make it public who nominates and what their reasons were, so that we can actually and then also then people could step up 
some, you know, people who know something about this candidate can step up and get to voice their opinion so that the research, so we know that the committee actually does proper and gets all the information there is, right, about uh, certain candidates. And this, I think, I believe would just make it easier for the committee and uh, also um, make it easier for us to understand, oh, well, okay, so this year, I understand, because they only had to choose between sort of these 10 people that were actually really worthy candidates. So we kind of get it, like why they would pick, you know, you know as it is today, we really don't know. And the only reason we know that, that Trump was, is nominated for next year is because the nominators have gone public and, and told the press, right? Otherwise we would know. So isn't that funny? Yeah. No, that's true. And then they, you know, they I send you this document that says confidential across the top. And I'm like, well, not that many people read my book. So it's effectively confidential uh, that I was a nominator. Um, why? Uh, something I've always been curious about. Why is the Alfred Nobel was Swedish and with some Russian um, extraction. Why is the Peace Prize given out in Norway? Yeah, it's the only one of, of his prizes that was given uh, to Norway. And it's quite curious. We, we actually don't know why. So this, you know, so, but what I've, you know, I've discussed this with, with sort of experts in history on, and, and also with, with Michael Nobel. And um, what the conclusion, you know, we come to it is that it was really back then, um, Norway was part of Sweden. We were actually governed by Sweden. So Norway did not have its own military power. It was very sort of, it was the little brother with, with no power. So, and also the Norwegian government that was, there was a government, but it was you know, ruled by the Swedish you know, king and, and government. They were um, really, they had a great, they showed a great interest in, uh, in the, the sort of the, the costs, you know, in, in peace. So they um, favored, you know, they were one of the first, you know, sort of government governments to uh, to publicly favor arbitration as a means to um, to to resolve conflict between countries. Um, they also um, gave money to peace congresses. So they were sort of an early. It showed very early on an interest in the cause. And um, Sweden at the time was the most powerful of the Scandinavian countries, at least. So it was, you know, sort of a, a little bit of a powerhouse and with, with strong links to the French, um, you know, uh, to the French uh, um, kings, you know, and sort of royalties. And, you know, they had very strong ties with, with European countries. So Norway was then the more of the innocent little brother um, and, we believe that Alfred Nobel wanted to give, you know, wanted such a place to avoid, you know, this 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 whole thing becoming so po political and part of a power struggle, right? So, yeah, <clears throat> that's interesting. Even even the process itself of the Nobel Prize is political. Uh, yeah. Not only the prizes that get uh, awarded or the selected uh, parties who win it. Yeah, we think of um, we think of Norway here in America as um, <clears throat> as Sweden's Canada. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We're not. Uh, we, no, but we it's, it's true. <laughs> we do too. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I want to ask you a question that I've often thought about. In physics, there have been multiple examples uh, in chemistry of of prize winners <clears throat> that uh, did great harm uh, by virtue of the fact that they had 
been written into the history books for all times as one of the 230 or so, mostly men, uh, by that time, you know, when I brought my book, there was only two women. There had been only two women. The previous wow. one, Maria Mayer, had, had won since 1963. Now, thankfully, after my book, they've doubled the number of female Nobel Prize winners. Uh, but, um, but, you know, it's such a small cohort, and there have been some horrible behavior, or some say, you know, borderline unconscionable behavior, by winners, I'm thinking of William Shockley, who invented the transistor, won the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. uh, for that in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and uh, the question about his Nobel Prize getting revoked because he had advocated for essentially what we call eugenics uh, has come up. Uh, similarly, you know, Jim Watson, a co-discoverer, along with Rosalind Franklin and, and others of, of the DNA double helix structure, um, yeah. has said some things that are quite offensive in many quarters. Um, what do you uh, make of the fact that uh, there have been no Nobel Prizes revoked for physics prizes, at least? Um, has that ever happened in the Peace Prize? And would it be beneficial if they did revoke some of the past egregious yeah. sinners? Uh, there have never been a prize that's been revoked uh, by the Peace Prize Committee either. Mm -hmm. And um, I actually find that quite shocking because, of course, the committee cannot know what a candidate will turn into, right, after, after they've given someone the prize. I mean, they can always hope. But when um, the most egregious example that comes to mind is really the, the you know, leader of, of uh, Myanmar, you know, um, uh, Ayin San uh, Suu Kyi, who's, who's really, you know, allowing genocide to happen in her own country. And, um, and she, was, she was definitely a worthy winner back in 1991 when she won, when she was a political prisoner um, and, for, you know, for the cause of democracy that she, but all the things that she stood for back then has now it's it's no longer valid because of the atrocities that is going that are going on in her own country under her watch. So and, and the fact that she's also having a trial for the the the, um, the International Court of Justice in The Hague and it's ongoing. So she is probably going to go away for war crimes. And do we really want to have a, a war crime criminal as a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. I don't think so. And I don't think it's 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 honoring other laureates. I don't think it's honoring Alfred Nobel's intentions either for the prize. So I think it would serve the committee and serve the Peace Prize to be able to revoke. And that's just their decision. They can absolutely, there's nothing saying that they cannot revoke it. So why won't they do it? You know? Right. It's very strange to me. Exactly. I, I feel like it's the same reason they won't recognize people who clearly deserve the prize in physics, uh, like Jocelyn Bell, for example. They could nominate. They could give her a Nobel Prize tomorrow, uh, but they don't do it. And I speculate in my book because it's essentially the world's biggest monopoly of its kind, at least in physics. And I think in the Peace Prize, maybe even more so. But just as we can't blame them for who is nominated, uh, we can blame them. The the corollary is that we certainly can name them for not or you know or, or shame them or blame them for not uh, revoking prizes that have been uh, used to bolster the image of, of, of criminals in some cases, as you, as you pointed out. And so I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not done. In other words, they don't do it at their peril. Yes. I believe, 
Yeah, in my book, I wrote about how the Pulitzer Prize used to be more prestigious in some sense than the Nobel Prizes, at least in literature, say. But now, of course, the opposite is true. And the question is, you know, what can we do if you were, uh, if you were, if it was the, you know, given to you, Uni has the sole discretion over the next Peace Prize. Do you have a clear winner that you would recommend? Do you have uh, a standard of rubric? I mean, maybe it'd be helpful someday if you and I, we talk about what should be like the, the classification that allows a person to be, to be selected as a laureate and then what allows them to be revoked if they don't behave properly. But yeah. what is your, what would be sort of a, a good prize in, in your opinion, Uni? So I think there, I mean, there, there, there are many people that would deserve the prize. I think, I think in general, I think someone who perhaps is not already a state leader, somebody who doesn't have the platform to operate from and, and the financial means. So if I think that it's, it takes courage definitely to um, select someone who's maybe not as known, um, who is, uh, who is, who is, you know, who's not a celebrity, because that's another thing too, Brian, is that, you know, they love these celebrities. And when they are, when they are pushed, you know, like when other celebrities and state leaders, they're, they're pushing for a candidate, you know, over time, the committee tends to sort of give in because, okay, look, we'll just give it to them, you know, like, you know, because, because they've been, you know, harassing us for so long, you know, about this price. And I, I believe that that's not, benefiting the price and inc increasing trust either. So to have the courage to really um, select winners that are doing a lot and would definitely need the celebrity and the financial means and the platform that is given through the prize would be, would be beneficial. So um, there's, uh, I think there, I think there, just off, uh, off the top of my head, um, there's there's actually a woman in the United States, and she's been a, a peace champion really for years. Um, she's quite moderate, you know, so she's not the, the taste of everyone. But her name is her name is Cora Wise, and I believe she lives in New York. And she has, you know, um, she was you know one of the first you know to really stand up against the the vietnam uh war back in those days and she's just continued and her her whole sort of philosophy and also teaching she's been teaching in schools and teaching you know uh students about you know the sort of the foundations for peace you know to create you know for, for relationships to be the the basis for communication and basis for negotiation, right, between people and countries. So she has done a great deal, and she's written books, and she's and she's been nominated numerous, numerous times, and she's she's on the radar uh, of the committee, but they've never given it to her. And I'm guessing it's because she she doesn't serve any um, any political, uh, you know, she doesn't, you know, she, she's not serving any sort of Norwegian foreign policy. You know, they have nothing to gain from her and uh, she's not really a celebrity. And uh, so there would be no sort of, you know, and th there's there's no contra controversy either, you know, because she's she's pretty much only done good things. Right. So. Right. So. Um, but pe people like that, like normal, regular people who are making you know these amazing efforts, you know, yeah. and can really do some good. 
So I want to close with that uh, because I know you've got a very tight time schedule with the book coming out in just a few hours. Um, what do you think the Nobel Prize uh, matters to people? Why is it so um, so sought after? Why is I mean, the president of the United States, you know, will tweet about this prize, and, and meanwhile, you know, there's probably a lot of these people without platforms, or even those that have won the prize, that would gladly mm-hmm. trade that prize for the power that a president wields. So why yeah. is that? Why is it so uh, obsessed over, and why is it important? If it, if you believe it still is important, I believe it is important, uh, especially today. Seeing um, with with you know the, I think our countries. I mean, not in my lifetime anyway, but I can't I can't recall a time in history in recent history where the, our world has been more divided you know, after World War II, obviously. Um, you know, we, we see these riots and discontent in general in our society, not only in the United States, but here too. And, you know, massive problems with, with immigration and what, you know, what to do. And uh, I believe um, the Peace Prize, it comes back to leadership. And for the Peace Prize to be what Alfred Nobel really wanted it to be, to be a beacon of hope, an inspiration to all of us, not only to leaders, but to all of us as, as individuals to become the peace champions we can be in our own, you know, worlds, in our own societies, in, in our families, in our, you know, in our schools, in, at, at our jobs. And, um, and so, and so, but if we don't trust, you know, if we, if we don't have trust in the institution and in the committee making these good choices for us, of course, we don't trust the laureates either. We don't trust these winners, you know, because like, oh, but that person has done, you know, that person has literally blood on their hands. And, you know, how can we, you know, we don't, we don't look up to these people anymore. And so, um, which is really sad. And I think it's, you know, I think they, they if they could be brave enough to um, really choose leaders that are unifying, that stand for a connection, unity, and peace. And, you know, through, you know, and, and the science prize is the same thing, right? Through innovative, um, innovative means, you know, and science and just, um, then it is, then we are, then at least there's hope that we can get on back on track. And that's where I think the Peace Prize has a role to play in giving us these role models that we can actually look up to when we don't necessarily have these role models in our governments and in our corporations for, for that matter. Right. So that's really where I think the, you know, the, it's, it's important to restore meaning, honor and integrity really. Mm-hmm. And yeah, right. I agree completely. I see Alfred Nobel as kind of this visionary genius who had, uh, all the right motivations and yet would uh, surely be turning in his grave uh, or a- ashes. I-, I think he requested to be cremated. But I want to close because you make him human in this book uh, with all these wonderful quotes. And um, and he really comes across in, in a sort of a more tender uh, light than I had ever really envisioned him. And so I credit you for, for turning me on to that perspective of him. And uh, I want to begin with, or just end with the quote that I'm going to start off and I'm going to record an intro to it, but uh, I'll record this uh, later. But he said uh, in the quote, you have a quote from him in every chapter. I love it. You say that he says, uh, I am a misanthrope and yet utterly benevolent. 
have more than one screw loose, yet I am super idealist who digests philosophy more efficiently than food. I assume that if you and Alfred Nobel could get together, it would be a wonderful conversation. I would love to be a fly on the wall for that. Uh, but for now, I want to wish you the best of success with this wonderful book, Betraying the Nobel, which is really a cry for, for reformation to use the prize's prestige while it still has it to do good for the world as Alfred intended. So uh, Uni, I want to thank you so much. I'm looking forward to doing a few events with you coming up. I'll put those on my website and we'll tweet about them. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy the ride. Congratulations on another spectacular book. Thank you so much, Brian. It was wonderful to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If you enjoyed this episode of Into the Impossible with Professor Brian Keating, please subscribe, comment, share, and review. Watch on YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or Stitcher. We appreciate hearing from you and are always open to your suggestions for future episodes. For more information and to sign up for Professor Keating's mailing list, go to drbriankeating.com. That's drbriankeating.com. Follow Professor Keating on Medium and Twitter at Dr. Brian Keating, Dr. Brian Keating. For more information on the Clark Center, go to imagination.ucsd.edu. Into the Impossible is a production of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination at the University of California, San Diego, in the Division of Physical Sciences. Eric Veery, Director. Brian Keating, Co-Director. Produced by Brian Keating and Stuart Valko. Mm -hmm.